service. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. Do you know these horse traders are? Do you know their plans? Dragging around from town to town and pulling through the sand. God knows I've been all around. The stories about the 1961 film The Misfits are insane. The director, John Huston, lost the film's entire production budget at a craps table while on location in Nevada. The film's three lead actors were victims of equally bad luck. Montgomery Cliff suffered a car wreck so horrific that it permanently altered his appearance and put him on a path towards what has been called the longest suicide in Hollywood history. Clark Gable, had a heart attack the day after the grueling shoot wrapped and died less than two weeks later. Marilyn Monroe was blamed for Clark Gable's death by tabloids and fans who said her behavior on set led her co-star to an early grave. And although it was remembered for decades mostly as the last film of two of its stars, a film that some even said was cursed, in recent years, The Misfits, has been reevaluated by many as a great film. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Frank Pipkin performing The Horse Trader in 1941. I played you that clip because I can't afford a clip from William Wyler's Ben-Hur. And why would I play you that specific slice of chariot wreckage cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on November 4th, 1960. And that was the day the production wrapped on The Misfits. The day before things really fell apart for its three major stars. All of whom would be fatally struck down by the film's so-called curse. On this episode, Clark Gable, Marilyn Monroe, Montgomery Clift, and the Curse of the Misfits. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 9, Hollywoodland. 
39-year-old Montgomery Clift was barricading himself in. Knocking back swigs from his hip flask, bourbon and juice spiked with crushed up Demerol, in hopes that the mixture of spirits and tablets would keep the indignities of life at bay. 1960, Monty knew he was different. The experiences that he craved, the people he was attracted to, these were not the same people or the same experiences that got John Wayne's red blood pumping. Monty didn't want what the Duke had, that forced macho stuff. Men who were really just boys, stuck in a perpetual state of arrested development. Monty was a man, a sensitive and vulnerable man. But who was this looking back at him? This reflection in the mirror, was he a man? Not a man Monty recognized. Not the impossibly handsome man who shared the screen with Elizabeth Taylor and Frank Sinatra in A Place in the Sun and From Here to Eternity. The man nominated for an Academy Award three times over. This man was twisted, bent, crooked. His nose, his mouth, his jaw. They were grotesque echoes of what once was and what would never be again. Montgomery Clift was a misfit. And he was all too aware of this fact, that people talked about him behind his back. Look at this guy, is he all right? Sure looks funny. Hey, that's Montgomery Clift, honey. He drank to forget about it all. And he popped pills, whatever the drugstore clerks were willing to fork over on account of his God-given charm. He self-medicated so that he didn't have to think about that awful night, four years prior in 1956. Back when he was still beautiful on the outside, doing the things beautiful people did. Up in the hills of Coldwater Canyon, above Beverly Hills, at Elizabeth Taylor's place. The jazz on the hi-fi, it swang, and the rosé was room temp. But though Liz and Monty were the best of friends, the little party she was throwing was admittedly lackluster. Monty felt a wave of melancholy, the kind only a man society won't allow to be his true self, even in the presence of his best friend, can truly experience. So around 11.30 that night, Monty said his goodbyes and left. He got behind the wheel of his brand new Chevrolet Bel Air four-door sedan. It was dark and Monty was tired, and he struggled to keep his eyes open as his car hugged the winding curves of the road leading down to sunset. He began to nod off, and the Bel Air began to pick up speed Monty's eyes closed, and in that instant, his friends from the party found the Bel Air wheezing and reeking of gasoline, accordioned around a telephone pole. Monty's body was stuffed beneath the dashboard, but when they pulled him out, they hardly recognized him. His face was gone. The blood was everywhere. And Liz Taylor pulled his head onto her lap and cradled him like a baby while they waited for the ambulance to arrive. Monty started to choke. He tried to gasp, but made no sound. He pointed at his neck and opened his mouth. Liz Taylor stuck her hand there, inside Monty's mouth, reached down into his throat, and pulled out what was blocking his airway. Two of his teeth. Montgomery Clift had more than just a couple of busted teeth to worry about. His nose was broken, his jaw was shattered, his cheeks were lacerated and his upper lip was split in half. Doctors didn't give him plastic surgery. Instead, 
they chose to sew him back together in a way that would preserve his appearance. It had the opposite effect. His nose and mouth were oddly askew, and it wasn't just his looks. The crash made him weaker. He stumbled, he fell, he twitched uncontrollably and suffered from bad vision and memory loss. It seemed that these things all got worse whenever he was sober. Monty's solution to that problem was simple. All that boozing and drugging gave Montgomery Cliff a bad rep. He was a drunk, a pillhead, a liability who couldn't keep his car on the fucking road, practically uninsurable. And if you were uninsurable, Hollywood wouldn't touch you. Most directors wouldn't give him the time of day. John Houston, however, wasn't most directors. The rogue Titan thought Monty, especially Monty circa now 1960, was perfect to play Purse Howland a broke rodeo rider who teams up with an aging cowboy played by Clark Gable to go round up wild mustangs destined to become dog food. The movie was called The Misfits, named so for the wild horses at the center of the plot. It was written by legendary playwright Arthur Miller as a gift to his then wife, Marilyn Monroe, who along with Monty and Clark rounded out the star-studded cast. The shoot was more difficult than anyone bargained for. Arthur Miller's attempt to make his wife happy by writing a great part for her was, as gifts go, too little, too late. Marilyn found herself permanently in a lonely place. And like Monty, she self-medicated. Unlike Monty, she was always late to set. Clark, meanwhile, that old school crank, was constantly irritated by what he saw as the insufficient work ethic of the method generation. And when it came to work, Director John Houston would rather play. Cards and dice, that is. He spent more time at the craps table in the local casino than he did in the director's chair, gambling away the film's budget. On location, the air out in Nevada, around Pyramid Lake, had a different feel than the air back in New York, teeming with salt particles from a dried up salt lake nearby. Salt particles in the air mixing with the sound of frogs or toads or whatever the hell they were. Little bulbous reptiles, cold-blooded, leathery things that slithered and hopped around at night, thriving in the desert conditions. These were conditions that poisoned the lungs of the crew, even striking down the formidable John Houston with bronchitis. And the heat was oppressive, and the work was demanding. And Monty caught a bull's horn in the nose. His palms were slashed open by a wild horse on the other end of a rope. But at the end of it, in the fall of 1960, after a planned 50-day shoot that dragged on for nearly twice as long, a shoot that was grueling, emotionally and physically taxing, for Montgomery Cliff, the proof was in the hellish pudding. Against all odds, he had been the most dependable actor on set, despite that bad rep of his. In fact, he turned in one of the greatest scenes of his career, a long-distance conversation with his character's mother from inside a phone booth. John Houston threw him a birthday party for his 40th as they wrapped production. And for a moment, Monty felt like maybe things were turning around after all. And before he left Nevada, he sat for an interview and told the reporter, quote, I feel like my life is just beginning. Life was coming to an end. The day after production on The Misfits wrapped, Clark Gable had a heart attack. Just 10 days later, his chest seized up again like an angry fist clenched inside his ribcage, 
and the so-called King of Hollywood, one of the town's most iconic stars with a nearly 40-year career was dead at 59. Clark never got to see the movie's final cut. On the day of his funeral, every studio in Hollywood flew its flag at half-mast. President Eisenhower, who had recommended his own personal caretaker to watch over Clark following his first heart attack, wept. So did America. Clark's fans had been there since Gone with the Wind back in 1939, and perhaps even longer. Fans who read the gossip columns in the papers, like Luella Parsons' interview with Gable's grieving widow published shortly after his death. What Kay Gable had to say shocked them all. Her husband didn't die from the three packs of Lucky Strikes he smoked every day, she claimed, or by the harsh conditions in the Nevada desert, the same conditions experienced by Montgomery Clift and all the others. Something else drove him to an early grave. Someone else. His co-star, the difficult one. Marilyn Monroe may not have put a bullet in Clark Gable, but she might as well have. Working with Marilyn Monroe was a death blow. Just look at her now, free to do as she pleased, going around as if nothing happened. She didn't even attend Clark's funeral. Clark's fans read through Luella Parsons' juicy column. Frankly, my dear, they did give a damn. They sought Marilyn Monroe out on the streets of New York City, where she was no longer straddling a subway grate in a white dress, but walking off an existential crisis brought on by her impending divorce from misfit screenwriter Arthur Miller. The fans yelled at her, just like they always did. But these were not the screams of delight from the past, those delirious requests of hire that she used to elicit when her dress shot up into the air as a subway train barreled along below. In late 1960, fans were now yelling something different at Marilyn Monroe. Not a request, but a question. They all wanted to know the same thing. Hey Marilyn, what's it feel like? to be a murderer. Kay Gable never said the words, Marilyn Monroe killed my husband while giving an interview to gossip columnist Luella Parsons. She didn't have to. The accusation was right there, or so it seemed to millions of Americans who, in the fall of 1960, were reading between the lines printed in the gossip rags. It wasn't the physical exertion that killed him, Kay was quoted as saying. It was the horrible tension, that eternal waiting, waiting, waiting. He waited around forever for everybody. Everybody reading that interview already knew that waiting around was part of the process on the set of a Marilyn Monroe film, at least as of late. With newspapers as trusted as the New York Times spreading Hollywood tattle about Marilyn's diva behavior holding up production on her previous two films, Some Like It Hot and Let's Make Love. But on the set of The Misfits, that behavior got worse. So bad that, according to the press, Marilyn Monroe was to blame when production came to a screeching halt in August. For nearly two weeks, the crew and the rest of the cast waited while Marilyn traded the Nevada desert for a hospital bed back in Los Angeles. 
The party line was that she was being treated for exhaustion. Marilyn was always exhausted. When she first arrived on set a month earlier in July, she didn't know if she was coming or going. The pills she took to wake up every morning and the pills she took to go to sleep every night did what they were supposed to do, perhaps a little too well. Marilyn Monroe was shutting the world out, puncturing her secondol capsules with a pin so that she could mainline the powder inside and thus expedite the drug's effects. Secondol, Nembatol, they brought Marilyn peace, calm. But with that calm came confusion, depression, mood swings, nightmares, and rashes. But they also gave her freedom from thinking about the things she didn't want to think about. Like Arthur, husband number three, America's most revered living playwright. The man she married to somehow validate her own feelings of inadequacy. Those deep-seated feelings she couldn't shake. That she was just some dumb blonde pinup and not a real actress. Arthur said he wanted to help, and he did so by writing the screenplay for this movie, The Misfits. A movie that would show off Marilyn's true acting chops and prove to the world that she was more than just a pretty face. But even Arthur Miller had trouble seeing beyond his wife's public image. To him, Marilyn was just a girl, a child actually, an anxious, troubled, needy child who would never be as sophisticated or highbrow as he was, no matter how hard she tried. And she tried real damn hard. She aimed to make the misfits the moment of her major transformation, from comedic actress to dramatic force. It also gave her the opportunity to act alongside her childhood hero, Clark Gable, a man she'd believed for years to be her own father. She delivered that confession to Clark the first time they met some six years earlier, that her mother once showed her a photograph of her deadbeat dad and never corrected young Marilyn when she said that she could hardly believe the dad she never knew just so happened to be one of the biggest stars on the silver screen. And now, here they were, Marilyn, arguably just as big of a star as Clark. The thing was, Clark Gable had the respect that Marilyn Monroe so sorely lacked. She didn't care if Clark Gable liked her or not, but she did want his respect. She wasn't here to please men, none of them. Not her husband, Arthur Miller, a card-carrying egghead, but also a sadist rewriting Marilyn's dialogue every night during the shoot so that every morning she was forced to learn new lines. And not the director, John Houston, a man she trusted, perhaps the only director who had ever treated her like a person and not just a piece of ass. Still, it seemed even John Houston was out to get her, forcing her to do take after take in the punishing desert heat temperatures soaring into the hundreds. That is, when he could be found actually doing his job and not gambling in the local casino. These men sought to undermine her. She knew it. They sought to make her goal harder to achieve. They said they wanted what she wanted, that they were using their talents and their influence, not just as artists, but as men, to help her get there, to a place of respect and professional fulfillment. But, but it was all just a ruse. Arthur Miller and John Houston, and even Clark Gable, forever bitching and moaning about her devotion to the actor's studio, to the capital M method. These men were roadblocks, big, loud, unmovable roadblocks, and Marilyn wanted them out of her way. But there was no navigating around these obstacles. So Marilyn shut them out. With a hat pin in one hand and a second all capsule in the other, she got to work. The work that came before her work as an actress, the work that made the other work bearable. 
She poked a hole in the capsule and then held it to her lips. And the powder had no odor, but the bitter taste stuck to her tongue. Nothing that a glass of Dom Perignon couldn't fix. She downed the concoction of barbiturates and booze in hopes that either she could ignore it all, the scorching heat, the rewrites, the retakes, the lip service. She was confident that she could beat the men at their own game. John Houston came up empty again. This streak of bad luck was unlike any he'd ever experienced, and he'd experienced plenty. Like many craps tables around the world, the one at the casino inside this Reno, Nevada hotel where Houston and the crew for the Misfits were staying called out to him. The song was a familiar one. Dice, chips, the odds, and the rush, and the highs, and the lows. And today's low was especially low. As the hot August night came to an end, Houston found himself out of $16,000. He slammed back a shot of Jim Beam and assessed the situation. Usually, he would just work himself out of the hole, like he did the last time this happened. Thousands owed to the casino brass. Qualified men. Capable men. Men who knew Houston didn't have that kind of cash to back up his appetite for risk, and thus made him stay all day and win back the money he'd lost before he was allowed to walk out with his life. Tonight was different. Tonight, John Houston was gambling with the studio's money. Tonight's loss of $16,000 was just part of a larger problem. It brought his total losses to 50 grand. That's $50,000 of United Artists' money. And now, the casino was calling in that debt. Houston was fucked. There wasn't enough cash to cover payroll, which meant that he had to find money or the production would be shut down indefinitely. And they would all hate him. Not just Marilyn, but everyone. Clark, Monty, the entire crew. Houston braced himself for the worst. He was tapped out. Sin dinero, as his amigos south of the border would say. The Misfits' bank account hit zero. Production ceased. Like many on set, Marilyn flew home to LA, which gave John Houston an idea. He called up her doctors, told them about her growing addiction to pills and her concerning behavior and suggested perhaps she take it easy for a week at a private clinic somewhere until production was able to resume. On the evening of August 28, 1960, Marilyn Monroe was admitted to the West Side Hospital on La Cienega. News of her hospitalization hit the wires, and as Houston had hoped, that news spread like wildfire. Marilyn, and Marilyn alone, was the sole blame for the film's problems and now its delay. That anxious, troubled, needy child, not John Houston, the man in charge. John Houston wasn't the bad guy. Maybe he had a problem when it came to gambling, but he wasn't the problem. The problem was Marilyn Monroe, laid up in a hospital bed, recovering from exhaustion, clearly not able to take the heat out in the desert with the wild horses. Meanwhile, John Houston strode back into the cooler confines of the hotel casino where he sat down at a craps table in Les bon Temps He found a tree to shake, scraped up a few extra bucks. And over the course of the evening, he turned those few bucks into three grand. And he took it as a good omen. His luck was finally coming back around. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Clark Gable wasn't making good use of his spare time. 
He cranked the car jack and watched as his Jeep slowly lifted in the air. It wasn't difficult work, just changing a flat inside his garage. But in the moment, it felt tougher than it should. As he wound the jack, he suddenly felt a sharp pain in his chest. It tightened up and wouldn't let go. Clark dropped to his knees. He broke out in a cold sweat. The perspiration ran down his forehead. He grit his teeth, bared the pain. And within seconds, the sharpness was gone. But it had successfully ruined his desire for this handyman shit. It was a Saturday, one day after the final day of production for The Misfits, which took place over at the Paramount lot in Hollywood. Final day, final scene, a two shot. Clark and Marilyn Monroe sitting in the cab of a truck, staring out at the night sky. Just head for that big star, Clark says in the film's last few seconds. It'll take us home. Now, Clark Gable was home, his home, and thank Christ he was. Relieved, didn't even begin to explain it. 90 days for a shoot that was supposed to be over in half that time. 90 days of running around the desert, breathing in the salt in the air, dragged 400 feet by a truck, nearly trampled by wild Mustangs. John Houston didn't give a damn whether Clark Gable lived or died as long as he got the shot. Clark was 59, way too old for this shit. He didn't want to do the damn picture in the first place. He knew he should have listened to his old Air Force buddy. John Lee Mann was a good friend of Clark's and one of his favorite screenwriters and most trusted minds. Clark shared Arthur Miller's script with John before he accepted the role. John thought it was too literary. A little out of Clark Gable's league, who, let's face it, wasn't the kind of guy you immediately thought of for a film with this much heft. Look, Clark, you're a competent actor, but you're not Spencer Tracy, John told him. People don't come to see you because you're a great actor. You know that. Deep down, Clark did know that. But then, what did they come to see him for? His brutal masculinity, as an early review described him? His rugged, handsome, macho charisma? The kind that drove his co-star, Monty Clift, up a wall? There was no denying that Clark was dashing and debonair, but at the same time, he looked like he could be your dad. Marilyn Monroe, for one, even thought he was her dad at one point. And Clark Gable, in return, didn't think much of Marilyn. To Clark, Marilyn was, and I quote, a self-indulgent twat. She wouldn't have lasted two seconds on set back in the day, back when actors showed up ready to work, ready to hit their marks and read their lines. It used to be so simple. None of this getting into character, navel-gazing, method horse shit. Complete waste of everybody's time. So when he accepted the role, he did so on the condition that it wouldn't be a waste of his time. His agent negotiated the highest single picture fee that he, or any other actor for that matter, had ever received to date. $750,000 against 10% of gross rentals. His contract further stated that he would only shoot nine to five, Monday through Friday, for 16 weeks. If production went longer than 16 weeks, he would get another 48 grand per week for as long as he was needed. Thanks to the addictions of the film's director and its leading lady, the misfits went long while Clark Gable got rich. But today, regardless of the balance in his bank account, he didn't feel rich. He felt like a crumpled up dollar bill in the pocket of a dirty pair of Marilyn Monroe's jeans. He thought about what his old buddy John Lee Mayen said before cameras rolled on the misfits. You're dead if you shoot this script. Jesus Christ. 
Wasn't that some shit? And by the time he walked from the garage and back into his house, the pain in Clark's chest had subsided completely. His face didn't get the memo, though. His wife Kay gasped at his appearance. Cold, clammy, white as a sheet. She wanted to call the doctor, but Clark refused. He was fine now. The pain was gone. And Kay was pregnant. And the last thing he needed was for her to get all worked up. Clark went to bed that night thinking about taking another pass at the flat tire on his Jeep in the morning. But when he woke up the following day, the pain came back. Worse than before, it latched on, tightened, harder, and Clark put a fist to his chest. Nothing he could actually do to help, just a reflex. He felt the cold sweat come back, and then a rush of heat. And Kay scrambled for the phone while Clark waited in vain for the tension in his chest to let up, hoping like hell that he wasn't going to waste some doctor's precious time. Clark Gable, it turns out, was living on borrowed time. His doctor concluded that the chest pains were indeed a heart attack caused by a severe coronary thrombosis. He was admitted to Presbyterian Hospital in Hollywood, which is where he was a few days later when John F. Kennedy barely eked out a win over Richard Nixon to become the 35th president of the United States. And Clark Gable was still there 10 days after he was admitted. On November 16, 1960, his condition, by all accounts improving, when he had a second heart attack and died. On the other side of the country, in New York City, Marilyn Monroe felt like dying, even if she was very much alive. She tried to hustle down East 57th to her apartment without getting noticed. But there was no not noticing Marilyn Monroe. She was stopped, often, and she was hounded, not for autographs, but for answers. They wanted to know how it felt, and if she had remorse. She quickly made her way underneath the awning outside 444 East 57th and inside the building, to safety, to silence up the elevator to the three-bedroom apartment on the 13th floor that she used to share with Arthur Miller, but now had all to herself. Once a love nest, now the place where she spun melancholy records on the turntable, survived on little more than sleeping pills, and shed pounds at an alarming rate, and once again did what she could to shut the world out. But the world wanted in. She was racked with guilt, harassed by fans who had turned on her and made to feel like a killer so-called self-indulgent twat who drove the great Clark Gable to his grave. She couldn't help but wonder, was it her fault? Was she to blame? Had she subconsciously taken out her anger and resentment at the man she never knew on another man who didn't want to get to know her? Was Clark Gable her whipping boy? The questions never stopped. Months later, Marilyn was still asking herself questions. Questions about Clark, about Monty, about John Houston, about the hot Nevada days and the impossible to remember Nevada nights. Nights of punctured secondal tablets and syringes loaded with nembatol that sank her deep into a dark recess of unconsciousness. What was it they said? Unconsciousness is bliss? Bliss or no? She was awake and alert on the evening of Friday, January 20th, 1961. Not for the party to celebrate the swearing-in of the now former junior senator from Massachusetts. Jack Kennedy would have to wait, and he would wait gladly. So while the good Catholic family man put his hand on the Bible and proudly took oath of office, 2,000 miles away south of the border in Juarez, Marilyn Monroe stood before a judge alongside Arthur Miller, 
and got her Mexican divorce. Contrary to gossip, Marilyn Monroe did not kill Clark Gable. And contrary to the popular narrative, Marilyn Monroe was not the reason why the Misfits shut down production for nearly two weeks. But Marilyn Monroe was a scapegoat for many of the film's troubles. Whether it was physical and mental stress or financial ruin, she was like one of those wild Mustangs out in the desert, a misfit, unable to be the thing she wanted to be a respected peer and a dramatic actress, instead destined to an unjust and cruel fate. Just like her co-star Montgomery Clift, permanently scarred from that near-fatal car accident, an accident that left him less desirable to the Hollywood elite, a fact that amplified his self-destructive tendencies. He worked on what his actress studio teacher later called the longest suicide in Hollywood history at his home, where he could be found chasing pills with booze the offers continuing to dry up. His only company, a live-in personal secretary, Lorenzo James. Monty was doing just that on the evening of July 22nd, 1966, sitting in his bed inside his New York City townhouse on East 61st Street, just blocks away from Marilyn's place. Only Marilyn wasn't there anymore. Marilyn had been dead for nearly four years. The papers called it suicide, but just like the case of Clark Gable's death and the rumor mill that surrounded it. The facts around Marilyn's passing were far from accurate. And for a full deep dive into the conspiracy theories and the truth about Marilyn Monroe's death, check out our two-part episode on Badlands from season one. But back to our story here. The Misfits was the last film to feature Marilyn Monroe. It bombed at the box office. Audiences didn't know what to make of it, Revisionist Western wasn't yet a recognizable subgenre in 1961. Ticket buyers looking for a laugh or a sex romp were sorely disappointed. It would be decades before the film would be reevaluated as a work of art far ahead of its time. But at the time, in the 1960s, The Misfits was seen as a cursed failure. It burned United Artists and John Huston's money. It claimed Clark Gable's life, and then it took Marilyn Monroe's life too about a year and a half after its premiere. And to Monty Cliff, the production was just another stain on his increasingly poor record, the kind of thing he'd rather forget about. Which is why that evening at Monty's townhouse, when Lorenzo James mentioned that The Misfits was playing on late night television and offered to stay up with Monty to watch it, Monty's response was swift and final. Absolutely not. Those were the last words anyone ever heard Montgomery Cliff speak. The next morning, Lorenzo found him face up on his bed, naked, glasses on, fists clenched at his sides, dead at 45. No foul play, no excess of pills and booze, nothing out of the ordinary. Just the final victim of the curse of the misfits. A saga so tawdry that it ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands.
Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.